tonight starts our 12th time through uh, talking on the subject of revival and how it came about, and then I'll jump into tonight. It came about with the thinking of a question that was posed to me, do I think that there will be a revival in our nation before Jesus returns? And so those were coming a lot because we were seeing a lot go on in our world and everybody that's a Christian's kind of buzzing like, is this the end of the world? Is this the apocalypse? Is there an end of the world? If you're a Christian, things like, is Jesus coming back? Will he come back? And so it just started making me really think about this topic called revival. What is it? What do we think it is? And so I've tried to do my best to run through it. But let's jump into it to tonight and I'll give you a couple of things we've talked about for 12 weeks, but I'll let you just sort of muse over it and get it in. Number one, we said that revival is a positioning. It's where God wants you to be. It's an expectation of position, that God wants your life to be in a place of his wisdom, which we'll dig out next week. And then it's the awakening of your conscience, and that's what I want to talk about tonight. What does it mean to have your conscience awakened to God. Here's the thought. God wants to awaken your conscience to his wisdom. What, what God is trying to push us to is to trust his wisdom. And you would think that would be easy. You would think, well, if we're a Christian and we believe in God, that it would be easy to trust God and trust what he says and trust his wisdom. But if we go all the way back to the very beginning of it all, with the story of Adam and Eve, they couldn't trust his wisdom. And there, and there wasn't exes and in-laws and outlaws and drugs and meth and porn, and it was just a man and a woman, and they couldn't even trust him. And then we get Ten Commandments, and they couldn't do that. And then they got a bunch of rules to follow, 670-something rules. They could not do those. And then Jesus gave two, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, love your neighbor as yourself. We can't do that. So what we know is that without the help of God, a human will never do the wisdom of God. So God has to help us. I'm going to give you the two things this week and next week of what's going on. Why would not a Christian, I'm not talking about people that don't believe in Jesus, but people who thumb up, I believe in Jesus, or claim they're a Christian... Why would that person who says, I believe in Jesus, why would that person not live under the wisdom of God? Why would, and, and I guess what I would say in that is that if I am a Christian and I am loving Jesus and I am following him, then my life should work. So the question becomes, as we said, when I'm under the wisdom of God, my life works. So if we look at a you know, a scope of Christians and we judge life and we go, okay, well, there's, there's people that don't know Jesus and there's people that do know Jesus. Statistically, we should say that the people that know Jesus, their life goes better. But in theory, it doesn't. If you just blanket look at everybody, the person who doesn't know Jesus and the person who does know Jesus, there's not much different. Their marriage is still a wreck. Their health is still a wreck. Their life is still a wreck. And so we get the question of why. What's the point? They're, Christian church people are no better than me. They're all hypocritical anyway. I know people who say they're a Christian, but they're hooked on porn. People that say they're a Christian, but they lie. And so the goal is that God is trying to wake us up. That's the whole thing of revival. 
is revival means you once were awake and then you went to sleep and then you try to wake yourself up again. It's a reawakening to wisdom. That's what I want to talk about tonight. And when that happens, the result is that God's reality is on display in your life. So that if Mark says, I'm going to live my life under the wisdom of God, which is contrary to everything I may think and see, if I do that, then I can expect the fruit of that to show in my life. I can expect it to show up in my family. I can expect it to show up in my behavior and in my habits. So my thinking... If I'm a Christian with a recurring habitual problem, a sin, a weakness, I cannot deduce that it's because the devil's so big. Because again, if he's that big, we would be in trouble. What we know is he was defeated. So if he's defeated, why is it such a struggle to see the reality of God manifest in my life? Why do so many Christians just live with perpetual chaos and problems? Because the truth be known, if we took Christianity and called it anything else and we judged it based on it and we called Christianity a car and we said, well, if you buy this car, yeah, it may work, it may not work. Like if you, if, you want, if you want to invest in something, you want it to work. So over time, if, if Christianity is not consistently working, then people become skeptical. And people say, well, why would I want that? You're a Christian. You still got a divorce. You're a Christian. You still went to prison. You're a Christian. You're no different. Why do I want that? So I think it's valid. It's no different if you go to a restaurant and you eat and the food is terrible and the waitresses and the, everything there is terrible, the likelihood of you going back. So if we can judge a restaurant, it's fair that people judge Christianity. It's fair that people say, I want to see the reality of what you say. If you say it's the best cup of coffee in New York, it needs to be the best cup of coffee in New York. I'm referring to Elf, the Christmas movie. <laughs> you know, you, you have to come to a place to, to believe that if it's what we say, if we say he's the way, the truth, and the life, if we say there is no other God but him, then, then there needs to be some backing of fruit to that. All right, here's the second thought, and then we'll jump into some scripture. Here is why I think the reality of God does not manifest in the awakened conscience of many Christians. We believe the stories, we quote the scriptures, we go to a church, we wear the t-shirts and the Christian lingo, but there's no reality for us. Here is my belief. There is a spiritual war to deaden your conscience in relation to God's wisdom. It is why Jesus will say, Paul will say about Jesus, you must put on the mind of Christ. You must be renewed, Romans 12, in the attitude of your mind. Because the deadened conscience will rob you of everything. I mean, you'll, by deadened conscience, I mean, you'll know all, you'll know it mentally, but it won't be a reality. I want to teach you why that is, at least my perspective of why that is, and why it's a struggle, and it's been a struggle from the beginning of humans. Here is the scripture in Matthew 4. We pick up a fight between the devil and Jesus. So two spirit beings that have existed before there were humans. 
Jesus existed in eternity past before there was humans. And Satan existed in eternity past before there were humans. But the strangeness of the story is the eternity past devil, Lucifer, Satan, shows up on earth talking to Jesus who is God now human. But what we know about both of them is they had a relationship in the past. Because how many of you know God created Lucifer and Jesus has always been eternal. So in the eternal past, they, God created this angel named Lucifer. He knew the ways of heaven. We know that to be true. In Job, he would go up and down into the heavenly realms. We know from the book of Ezekiel that Lucifer uh, was part of the uh, cherubim and seraphim that brought worship to God. So there was something going on between them relationally. But now we pick up and the relationship is now strained. Because we have one who claims to be the Son of God in the flesh, named Jesus. And we have another spirit being, which is strange. He obviously manifests that he can be seen. At least we would think he could be seen. So they're in a wilderness, and they, they start a conversation. And the conversation is very interesting. Because the conversation is the devil, Satan, trying to cause Jesus to snub his nose at the wisdom of God. And he plays on everything human. I don't have time to go into it tonight, but he, he plays on his hunger, he plays on his desires, and he pulls on him. And then the last one in Matthew that he pulls on, this is the third thing he pulls on, he said, I will give it, this is Satan talking to Jesus, I will give it all to you. If you will kneel down and worship me. Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. Jesus told him, for the scriptures say, you must worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now the thinking has been by a lot that Satan wants your worship. I want to challenge that thought tonight. That I do believe that there's an aspect where Satan says, I want you to worship me. But I want you to see how he's going to try to get it from him. He's going to attempt to get the worship by, from Jesus by pulling on his natural, physical, emotional state of being. It's going to be a word we'll pull out in a minute. And he, he pulls on, I'm going to give it all to you, your desires, uh, you're hungry, you're thirsty... So the enemy here shows us that there's a war of this thing called worship to where either your conscience is going to be awakened to God or your conscience is going to be awakened to yourself. And the challenge of all Christianity is not you and the devil. The challenge of all Christianity is yourself and God. Because the real battle is not the devil. The real battle was self. Because if the battle was the devil, the devil could have made him and forced him to do something. The devil could not force him to do anything. He could only convince him that selfish behavior was the answer. So the reality of why many Christians struggle is not some demon that's plaguing them. 
It's that their, self, their conscience has never been awakened to wisdom because their conscience is worshiping their self. And self becomes the battle. If you ever want to know who your biggest enemy is, it's in the mirror. It's not flesh and blood. It's not other people are your problem. Your boss is not your problem. Your uncle's not your problem. The person that molested you is not your problem. Problem is look in the mirror. It's us. It's our own flesh and the way we live life and the way our emotions handle life. Now, once we understand that, that I am my worst enemy, we start realizing that perhaps the reason Christianity doesn't manifest in a reality is not the devil, it's that I never get myself out of the way. And so therefore my marriage is impacted because selfishness becomes God. And I worship myself and it just creates a myriad of problems in my life. So when he says, kneel down and worship me, you notice that he, he wasn't asking for money. He, he wasn't asking, could you join my church? He was simply saying that Satan worship is putting yourself and your selfish desires above the wisdom of God. And yet most of us in this room would say, I would never worship Satan, ever. Especially a Christian, oh my God, I'm not a Satan worshiper. Because the moment we say Satan worship, we think dress in all black, black makeup, red beady eyes, a little pitchfork, a Harry Potter, little wizard hat, and putting spells on people. And then watching the exorcist, somebody throws up green soup. Oh my God, the devil. Oh my God, it's witches and wizards and demons. And like when we think the devil, we think demons. And do you believe they're demons? And I'll go, yeah, there's demons. But I believe in that. I believe there's a spirit world. But the real battle of real sat satanic worship is the worship of self. It is the root of satanic worship. It is the worship of self. So I, I dare say that any of us in here would go, well, I'm, I'm a Satan worshiper. But I bet if we polled the room, many of us would say we do struggle with selfishness and worshiping self. And if you don't believe that, just go Google how many churches are in Douglasville. Because we're all trying to find what pleases us. So we can't come together as a big group of people because we're selfish about the music we like, the kind of preaching we like, the kind of atmosphere we like, the kind of people we like. So we have 5,000 different churches to appease selfish behavior. And so what happens is we, we would never say that we're divided into different denominations because of selfishness, but the reality of it is we can't agree, and if we can't agree, well, I'm going to take my way. So which is probably why the Bible says until we all come into the unity of the faith, which will be never, because it's going to take him coming back to unify that for us. Here's the thought. Revival is the awakened conscience, and, and I flip the words because I, I intentionally meant to do this. It's the awakened conscience serving God through worship. You don't, you don't worship God and then serve Him. Like, I worship God and then let me go serve in the nursery. Serving is worship. So even when you're just helping, 
doing something for the kingdom of God, that act of service is considered worship to him. And so I have to understand that serving, I serve God through worship. And so I'm, I'm worshiping him, and that worship is an act of service. I want to kind of try to make it a little more clear. Romans 12:1. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Now, here's where it gets interesting. Give your bodies to God for all he's done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice. The kind that he will find acceptable. And this is the true way to worship him. Now, what is the true way to worship? Giving your body to him. How many of you know we're in the middle of a hellacious, non-worshipping culture right now? Because I don't give my body to Jesus. I'll just desecrate my body. I'll, I'll be a male that'll turn female, a female that'll become male. I'll be gay. I'll be straight. I'll be whatever. I do anything I want with my body. If I want to get drunk, I get drunk. If I want to get high, I get high. Oh, but by the way, P.S., I do love him. And I present to you, is it possible to really worship God when you've never given him your body? And yet, rarely do we talk about this. Rarely do we sit down and say, have you given your body to him? We say things like, have you given your money to him? Do you tithe? Have you given your mind to him? Do you think right? But this says, I plead with you to give your body to him. How many of you know what we teach in Christians is that the Holy Spirit lives in us and wants to live through us. But it's difficult for the Holy Spirit in Jesus to live through me if the spirit that lives in me is constantly fighting with who's in charge. I heard something years ago that I thought was very poignant and I made it part of my thinking. It says there's a big difference in the Holy Spirit being resident within you versus president within you. And with a lot of us, he's resident, meaning I just want him to live in me so I don't go to hell, but I don't want him to be president. I don't want him calling all the shots. I don't want him telling me what to do. And so this giving of my body as a sacrifice is how I worship him. I, 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 it's just a strange thing, but this human flesh, I mean, think about it. This is how God manifests himself through us. He chose us to put himself in us humans and said, now you humans go out into the world and allow my spirit and power to work through you to bring healing in your hands, to bring life through your mouth. Let me inhabit your body so that you can do greater works than even I did. And you better know that the one that's against it all is like, yeah, no, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to let you use these people. You can inhabit them. I'm okay with that but I'm going to keep them so selfish that they never accomplish anything. They'll never be able to give to your kingdom because they'll spend all their money on themselves. They'll never be able to plug in because they'll be so skeptical about other people and so hurt by other people, it will never work. They'll never be able to go deep with you because I'll keep them so busy buying houses and buying cars and buying lands. I'll keep them so busy working for retirement, giving all of their energy to themselves that if they have anything, you will only get their leftovers. And so Jesus gets our leftover money, our leftover prayers, our leftover energy, and our leftover time. Why? Because most of us are worshiping our body rather than letting our body be a sacrifice for his kingdom. 
Like, use me, God. Man, use me at work. Use me wherever I'm at. I'm yours. And so oftentimes as Christians, we, we want God to bless our life, but we never stop to say, wait a minute, the reason I'm here is to be used by Him. I'm a voice for Him. I'm a light for Him. Listen to Genesis. I'm going to take you all the way back and show you the, the battle here. In Genesis, we have the same serpent that, that was with Jesus showing up with Adam and Eve. So this eternal being, this spirit being called Lucifer, shows up in the garden and manifests, we would say, as a serpent. I mean, if you've got a picture of that, it's a snake in a tree. And then you got little Eve naked and little Adam naked, and this little snake's just looking at him, chit-chatting with him, which is strange. But if you go back and read it, the serpent never says, worship me, which is interesting. He never says, I'll give you the world if you'll worship me. The reason is, you remember with Jesus, if you worship me, I'll give you all the world. But, but Satan can't do this with them because they already have all the world. They already have everything at their disposal created by God and God gave them dominion and authority and said, it's all yours. So if it's all yours, what could tempt you? If you have everything... I watched a video with Elon Musk, the richest dude in the world, 300 plus billion bucks... I'm like, what could he need? You got that much money, you want some shoes, buy 5,000 pair. Like literally, when you think about Adam and Eve, what temptation could work? What could cause them to give God the middle finger? What do you offer them? And what he offered them was self. And this is what he said. He's talking to Eve. And he says, what did God tell you? And she said, well, he said, we can't eat that fruit or we die. And verse 4, he said, no, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God, watch, this is interesting. God knows that your eyes will be opened. Does that sound like an awakened conscience? He's already playing on her that something's lacking. Your eyes will be opened. See, he's not tempting her with the kingdoms of the world. She already has them. He's not tempting her with bread because she's hungry. She can eat anything but one piece of fruit. He's tempting her conscience. And the conscience is you're lacking something and therefore you're not like God, knowing both good and evil. And in that moment, something selfish kicks in. And for the first time in humanity... A selfish thought kicks in. And rather than just saying, wait a minute, uh, I don't need anything. I have already have everything. She starts pondering this, I, your eyes will be opened. And the woman was convinced, verse 6. She saw that the tree was beautiful. That's fleshly and selfish. Its fruit looked delicious. Now here's the thinking. In our Christian mindset, when we think the tree of knowledge of good and evil, we automatically think it's a dirty tree, an evil tree. 
But that tree was not dirty and evil. So when she says it's beautiful and delicious, it was probably beautiful and delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So you understand it wasn't the fruit she wanted. She wanted the wisdom that it could give her. Why? So she could trust self and be like God versus trust God. So she could be the one that could determine good and evil and not God. So what she wanted was the wisdom to live her life her way. Which we would call selfish. So she took the fruit, she ate it, and she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were opened. Now we would say that's the awakened conscience. But her eyes being opened was a deadened conscience, which is totally antithetical to what you would think as an oxymoron. Her eyes were open, but she was dead because the moment she opened her eyes, she felt shame at her nakedness. It, it was a play. You have everything, but yet you don't see. You have everything, but you don't know. And she goes, well, I want to see and know. Okay, you want to see and know? Well, if you want to see and know, then this is what has to happen. She goes, yes, I want to see and I want to know. I want to have full wisdom. And I want to be able to determine good and evil. And she bites it and her eyes become open and she sees and she knows. And when she looks down, she immediately judges herself that nakedness is a shameful thing. And so at this moment, what happens is selfishness becomes the judge of humanity. And it's been our problem from that day till today. That our selfish behaviors become the God that we worship. And then I force you to love me no matter what I want. And if I say to you, yeah, but that's not what God wants, you say, well, you can't look at me. You're just a shallow, narrow-minded, bigoted, homophobe, or whatever word we could label people. Because anytime you try to pull somebody's selfish wisdom to God's wisdom, there is going to be a war. And, and this war will be, well, I don't understand why God would make me this way or God wouldn't let me love who I want to love or be who I want to be. So that war becomes, I'm trying to cause God to identify with my desire for selfish living. And God will never dumb himself down to acknowledge the God of your selfishness. He will always cause you to repent of it and then trust his wisdom. Always. Here's the thought. The spiritual war wasn't that a human would worship Satan. The war was that a human would worship self. Satan did not ask Eve to worship him. He simply asked her to worship herself. And if he could get that done, if he could get her to worship self, he wins. Now the reason with Jesus it was so powerful, if you'll worship me, I'll give you all the world is because Jesus didn't possess it all. He was going to have to win it back. But he plays on selfish behavior. He plays on his hunger. He plays on his emotions. He plays on his physical body. Because what the battle has always been is the worship of self. It destroys marriages. It destroys health. Like literally, you just let humans alone and we'll kill ourselves off. 
I had a doctor friend of mine was telling me about sicknesses. I went to him to talk to him about some stuff. And in his talking to me, he was an internist, and he said to me, he said, Mark, 90% of all sicknesses that I deal with are self-inflicted. What? Nine out of ten sicknesses that you deal with are self-inflicted. He said, yes, of all the people in my office is filled with people, nine out of ten of them are in my office because of self-inflicted behavior that has brought sickness to them. Through lifestyle choices, through food choices, through th the way they treat themselves, they don't sleep, they don't exercise, they don't eat well. And I said, well, what do you do? And he said, well, he said, I would love to tell you that all of the nine go home and change their lifestyle. He said, but they don't change their lifestyle. I thought, really? He goes, no, they just want me to give them some medicine to fix the selfish behavior so they can keep being selfish. In other words, I don't want to stop eating bacon and ice cream. I want a pill so I can keep eating bacon and ice cream. And modern medicine basically just helps us keep living. And we get, we get less healthy and sick. And then we ask Jesus to heal us. Like, why won't Jesus heal me? And a lot of the reasons I'm going through what I'm going through, I'm not saying all of it, but selfish behavior. And it has nothing to do with weight. It has to do with people are broke, in debt, credit cards maxed out. I don't know why God won't bless me. Because when you're selfish in your giving and you spend all your money on yourself and you've maxed out every credit card, it's amazing how selfish living can destroy what God wants to do in your life. Well, they tell me the Lord wants me blessed. Well, He does, honey, but 32 credit cards maxed out, that might be a problem. It might not be His blessing. It might be your inability to manage money. It might be that you overspend, you overeat, you don't sleep enough. So what I would like you to see, and you say, what are, why are we talking about revival? I'll tell you why in a moment. But we use the terms revival, but if we stop thinking revival like, wow, the Holy Spirit's in a room, we're slain on the floor having carpet time, and we think revival is awakening to my selfish behavior. And to call me into a place of newness with God to where my selfish behavior dies off. Here's my thing. When selfish behavior dies off, you will have a spiritual awakening. You'll see God do things for you. You know, you, I don't have the money to give, but you start giving. You just give. You'll, you'll be amazed at when the selfishness of wanting to hold on to it versus the, self, the, the, the sacrificial giving of it, the moment you sacrificially trust His wisdom, things happen. Same with forgiveness. I don't want to forgive them. But when I do and I let my selfish behavior go and go, well, God says forgive them, so I will, life begins to change. A deadened conscience is selfish sacrifice, but awakened conscience is a holy sacrifice. So when we talk about awakened conscience in revival, what we're talking about is your life is a holy sacrifice. You're here to say, God, what do you want me to do and let me live it? But a, a dead conscience is one that, that is selfishly sacrificial. It's just you live for yourself. Both are worship. You can worship in a very dark mode by worshiping yourself and being selfish. And you can worship Jesus by sacrificing sacrificially of yourself. 
and I'll just say this to be the truth of it, you cannot love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and be selfish. And you cannot love your neighbor as yourself and be selfish. So the two commands that Jesus said, everything I'm doing hangs on two things. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. I got it. I got it. No, you don't. Because the core of that is you cannot do it selfishly. And it's in the story of a man that says, what must I do? And he goes and says, well, i tell you what you do. Why don't you just go sell everything you have and come follow me? And he's like, dude, I can't do that. I mean, I can do everything else. But the one thing you're touching is my business and my money. Yeah, I'm not going to serve you there. And he walks off and Jesus says, man, how hard it is for rich people to enter into the kingdom. And I don't think he meant that rich people won't get in the kingdom I think that a lot of times what he means is that we become selfishly motivated in life and we can't let go of the selfishness. The money becomes, I need the money. I can't serve God because I'm working 90 hours a week. I need that. Like I, I can't balance out this God in me, God in me, and so it becomes a struggle. But you'll either worship God or you'll worship yourself. Both are worship. And if you want to know, look at your checkbook and ask how much of the funds you have go to you and your stuff versus how much goes to help other people and bless people. And I'm not saying money to money, like thousands to thousands, but seeds. How many seeds are you throwing to, to eradicate selfish behavior? All right? This is Jesus' half-brother, James. What is causing quarrels and fights among you? Well, we would say the devil. Well, there's demons in the church. There's devils in the church. Watch what he says. Don't they just come from the evil desires that war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You're jealous of what other people have, and you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it. In other words, he lets us know that one of the greatest problems of churches not experiencing a move of God and not really seeing the life of God is selfish behavior. We hurt each other's feelings. We get our feelings hurt. We want what we want. And if I don't get what I want... I'll pout, I'll fight, I'll argue, I'll gripe, I'll complain, I'll post on Facebook, I'll do whatever I have to do to prove my point. And this is Jesus' half-brother, so I think he was clued into something. He goes on to say, even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. In other words, he doesn't say that the devil's hindering the move of God in your life. He says it's your own motives Because the way you're living is you're just living for your own pleasure. If we can ever grab that, you know, statements like die to yourself become very powerful. Because really the motivation of all Christianity is just going to be a war. Do I trust that or do I trust me? And when a guy runs my, you know, Monica over and a drunk driver kills her, do I want to forgive him or not? Selfishness kicks in. And when somebody talks trash about me, uh, Sylvania, there was a guy all around Sylvania when we were there, and he was just talking all kind of trash. 
Am I going to get bitter and mad and angry and hurt? And I just called him on the phone. I called his name and I said, Hey, I just hear you're going around town saying all these things. I, I don't mind you saying that I'm this, this, and this because that's true. But, but everything you're saying is a lie. But do you know what? If I wasn't careful, it was going to get me into an argument and a war to where that gentleman would have become a thorn to me that began to impact the way I think and the impact the way I live. It's why a lot of preachers today sit in green rooms and don't even come out to the front row until after it's all started because they're so bitter and hurt at people. They don't, they've been hurt over and over. Christians are skeptical because they've been hurt over and over by selfish people. Pleasure. What would happen if we all just died to self, loved each other, served each other, gave of our resources, gave of our prayers, gave of our time? This place would fill up with people going, what are y'all doing? And we'd be like, well, we're just trying to live like Jesus. Selfish is powerful, though, because it's hard to quit donuts. James 4 verse 5, do you think the scriptures have no meaning? In other words, the way James is writing, and it should be clear to us Christians, but obviously we can read the Bible and not think it's talking to us. Have you ever read the Bible and you just did it as a devotion, but you didn't realize that God was trying to talk to you? Have you ever read the Bible and went, oh, that's me? Saw yourself in the pages. Jeremiah 17, years and years ago, I was reading Jeremiah 17. I was just breezing through it, and this is what it said. It said, because of your own fault, you'll lose your inheritance. And I just highlighted it and kept reading. Because I I, I wasn't understanding that the reason we read scriptures is to understand self in relation to the mind of God. And the very scripture I read, you'll lose your inheritance because of the way you are, I lost my inheritance. By the way, I chose. So it's, it's, a, it's a weird moment when Scripture fulfills itself in your life. So don't always read it just so you can post a Scripture. Read it so that you may, you may judge the selfishness of you against the mind and the wisdom of God. They say that God is passionate. That He's placed His Spirit within us and it should be faithful to Him. And he gives grace generously, as the scriptures say, watch this, God opposes the proud. Now, if we're not careful, we'll take proud to be, well, I'm not proud. But proud is any time selfishness stands above his wisdom. That's pride. Uh, Lucifer, the reason he fell was pride. He put his thinking above the wisdom of God. I will exalt my throne above his throne. So all we need to know is what is pride. Pride is selfishness that is exalted above the wisdom of God. And he goes on to say, he gives grace. Scriptures say God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves before God. Now watch what happens when I humble myself. How how would I humble myself? Well, some cultures strip their shirt off and whip their backs. Some cultures humble themselves by, I'll I'll go on a long, long, long fast. I'll punish my body. I'll inflict pain upon me. But humbling, humble your what? Yourself. 
So, so hum, humbleness is just bringing selfish desires under the wisdom of God. And when I do that, watch what happens. You can resist the devil. Wait, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you mean to tell me that when selfishness comes under God's wisdom, I have power over the devil? Yes, because the reason many can't resist him is self has never been humbled. They've never said, let me let his wisdom be my God. And he'll flee from you. So I always say this. This is a good, I'm not saying it's always, but it's a starting point. If you feel like the devil's riding your back hard, and you're saying things like, I just can't get the devil off my back. I just can't get him. It's like I, I get one step forward and three things fall apart. Rather than thinking that way, ask yourself, why isn't he fleeing from me? And being that there's only one devil, there's not millions of them, there's one. I dare say he's picking on you personally. It's probably that the reason you think the devil's not fleeing from you is that the devil you're fighting is yourself. And you wake up with that devil every day. I'm not saying the devil can't personally attack or demons can't come against us. But a lot of times the darkness we're waking up with is self. Come close to God. You see, that reeks of selfishness is going by the wayside. Selfishness, you won't come close to God. You'll chase your desires. You'll chase your way. You'll chase your thoughts. You'll chase your dreams and then ask God to bless you. But if you'll come close to Him, God will come close to you. So the question would be, if I, don't feel, if I feel like God's far from me, and I, I, don't, I don't feel like he answers me, rather than thinking, again, it's the devil, ask yourself, are you really pressing in to come close to him by dying to selfish behavior? I heard somebody say, a pastor friend that I follow, I don't know if this is true or not, but he said it, and I'll take it, his word for it. He said, across the spectrum of Christianity, 90 plus percent of all Christians pray less than five minutes a day. So we could ask, then is the devil the problem? Or is it just I'm really super busy with my life and I keep God in my hip pocket for a rainy day, but am I really coming close to him? Because I'll tell you, if you want to know how hard it is to get close to God, get married and have kids. And then buy a dog. And then get a job. And then live in Atlanta. And you will find out real quickly that everything on planet earth is vying for attention. And so what I said to someone today, perhaps the issue of selfishness is that God is just barely getting our leftovers. Our leftover energy, our leftover prayers, our leftover time, our leftover effort. Come close to God and God will come close to you. Wash your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts. And then this is how I would define selfishness. What is selfishness? Selfishness is divided loyalty between God and the world. Between my way and what I want versus his way and what he wants. And if you ever could define selfishness, rather than looking how many guitars I have on the wall or how much... Uh, you know, I, I waste my lifetime, my time during the day. Rather than trying to balance, am I selfish because I love to collect cars or am I selfish because I spend a lot on Christmas? Look at selfishness as divided loyalty 
between what you want and between what God wants. Because you can have a lot of stuff and still God is priority in your life. And you can be broke and you're, you're in charge of your life. But it's a divided loyalty. So let there be tears for what you've done. Let there be sorrow and deep grief. Let there be sadness instead of laughter. Gloom instead of joy. Listen to this verse 10 of James 4. Humble yourself before the Lord and what happens? He lifts you up. I want you to highlight this if you're following in your Bible. Star it or write it down. This to me is the, the New Testament definition of revival for me. I'm not saying it's the only one. Verse 10 to me is revival. When a group of people humbles themselves, the Lord will lift them up in honor. And I, anywhere I've ever seen revival break out in the world or through history studying it or in churches that say revival has broken out, you can almost guarantee that it came on the hills of humility. They either started praying, they either started coming close to God, pressing into God, they became desperate, they became desperate for God to do something, they were tired of just religion, they were tired of just doing it the normal way, and they began to humble themselves, they began to give more, they began to pray more, they began to seek God more, and in that humility that self began to come down and God began to honor, God pours out His Spirit. And he lifts them up in honor. And so when we walk into a building and we go, gosh, revival is here, maybe we should think, wow, humility of God's people is here and his power showed up. Because did his power show up in the street first? No, it showed up with 120 that were humble enough to go wait it out. And then once, they, once that God lifted them up and poured out his spirit... The, the town got the taste of it. So revival is the world tasting of the honor of God on your life. So that the world around you becomes revived because they work with you. And they become closer or they, they, they hunger after God because they work with you and they see something different in you and it makes them want it. Why? Because in that humility God has honored you and that honor is seen by other people. What's so different about you? Well, let me tell you. A girl, this is years ago, but it touched my heart. We were in math class in high school, 12th grade, and a girl named Sarah turned around and she said, I want to ask you something. I said, what? She said, why are you always happy? You're always smiling. Well, I could have said, well, because I'm ADD and have no medicine. Uh, I don't know. I don't, because I passed the math test and I thought I would flunk. But I knew in that moment that this sounds really spiritual. I don't mean it to sound arrogantly spiritual. But I know that she knew or picked up that there was something different in me. And that thing that was different is that every day after high school, I would go to my local church and I would get my guitar and I would worship and I would sing and I would pray and I would spend time with God and I would read my Bible so that when I'm sitting in math class, a random girl says, what's so different about you? You're always smiling. Because I guess because the presence of the Lord was carried where I went. Because how many of you know the world can know whether you've been in His presence or not? Moses was in his presence. He came down. His face is glowing. Uh, you know, it even says in the New Testament, Acts, it says, I perceive these people have been with the Lord. They know. Here's the thought. 
Revival is God's grace upon the humbled soul that lifts you up in honor. Revival is God's grace on the humbled soul that lifts you up in honor. So if you want to define revival, what is it? It is the grace of God that's brought to the humbleness of people, but it lifts them up. So it's a lifting up. It's God's honor. You don't even deserve it, but because you humbled himself, he honors you. This is a thought I'll end here. This is the last scripture. In thinking about all of the conversations lately, do I believe it's the end of the world? Is it the apocalypse? What about Palestine and Israel? Is this it? Is the Antichrist coming? Is Jesus coming back? Is there a rapture? Should we be ready? How close do you think we are to the end? I wish I could answer all that. I wish I could tell you today at 822, he's coming, be ready. I will say that in all my conversations, I hear this a lot. This is really weird times like never before. Everybody agree with that? This is weird times like never before. A young lady in the church texted me uh, this week and said, please pray for my sister. And I said, absolutely, I will. What's going on? She's going into surgery today to detransition from a girl to a guy, and they're going to take her breast off today. And I said, yes, I'll be praying. She went through the surgery, and she's 22 years old, 23. She had the surgery. It's just strange times. I've been pastoring 30-plus years. I've never had that prayer asked me to pray, ever. So it makes me think we're living in different times. We're, we're living where boys don't know if they're boys and girls want to be girls and girls wish they were boys and turn into boys and boys turn into girls. And we're all watching it going, wow, this is strange. So I, I will just say, I don't know if Jesus is coming soon, but I will say it's a strange world within which we live. But there is a passage of scripture hidden, not hidden, but tucked away nicely in the book of Revelation concerning the end. And with quick reading, it, you know, it just goes by. But everybody that is a Christian has talked about it. Because in this text is where we find the terms like Antichrist and then Hollywood 666 and all the dirty evil stuff. So if you want to know... Is Jesus coming back soon and when and what do you think about Israel? Before you try to figure out what's going on with Palestine and Israel and what's going on with the Father and when he's coming back, go home tonight and look in the mirror. And when you do, there's going to be a very hard question. Here it is, verse 16. The beast, which is a work of Satan, required everyone... Small and great, so those are the people you don't know, great, the Bill Gates of the world, the George Soroses, the Elon Musk, the great ones, the rich, all the people that we say run the country and the world, the the Bilderbergs, the Rockefellers, and the poor, those of us that can't even pay a bill. It doesn't matter, all of you. Free people and slave, he forced them to take a mark on the right hand or the forehead, Hollywood 101. We've all seen the movies about it. We've read the books left behind. We've heard Christian preachers say, He's coming, you don't want to go to hell. But I want you to look in the mirror because the next verse is telling. 
how could he require everyone to take it? By simply creating a culture that is so driven by selfishness, they will do it willingly. I will require it, but they will give it willingly. And the way I'm going to give it from them willingly is I'm not going to let them do anything of their selfish desires unless they have it. I'm not going to let them buy anything, and I'm not going to let them sell anything. Now that in its nature, buying and selling is the art of selfish behavior. I want what I want, I work for my money, I purchase what I want to satiate my hunger, to put a roof over my head, and then the enemy says, if you really want to know how the end of the world is going to come, I'm going to touch selfish behavior. And the way I will know whether you're for me, Lucifer, or for God, is whether or not your selfishness becomes your God. And if your selfishness is your God, you will take the mark. And the moment you take the mark, this is not a study on the book of Revelation, but the moment you do it, you're condemned to eternal damnation forever. That ought to tell you the power of selfish worship. The moment, because you're hungry, you want your house, you want your food, you want your kids are going to be... So think about this a minute. If you don't take the mark... Your kids go hungry, you go hungry, you get no gas, you have no food, you cannot go to Publix, you cannot get anything. You say, well, what I'll do is I'll go live out in the world and I'll I'll have my own garden. Great. You can't buy seeds, you can't get water, because anything you want to buy or sell, you're going to have to have the mark. So you need to go live near some river somewhere and you need to go and have some seeds sewed up. So the reality becomes... Would you watch your children rot in front of you? Would you watch your daughter starve to death because I refuse to take a mark and let my wisdom trump God's wisdom? See, that's what I mean by look in the mirror here. Look in the mirror and rather than thinking rapture, think, are you selfish? Because every person who is rooted in selfishness, my belief is, will take the mark. Because we're so conditioned, I want my way. I I want God to... It's all about me. My job is about me. My belly's about me. My money's about me. And then so Lucifer comes along and says, well, the way I'll get everybody is I'll just make it all about them. So if you want to keep doing what you do, well, just take a mark and you can go do it. Shoo. Go live yourself. Go have fun. And it says, and no one could buy or sell anything without the mark, which was either the name or the number representing his name. Let me pray for you. Bow your head for a moment. I don't know you. The Bible's pretty clear that no man knows the thoughts of somebody else but themselves and God. I have no clue what your personal life is like. I can judge my own. And I know if I'm fair in judging my own, selfishness can creep up. You feel like you deserve it. You've worked hard. You get lazy. 
you got a little extra money and now that I have a little extra money, I can spend it on myself. And Nothing wrong with that. But if I'm not careful, my entire Christian existence is God meeting all my selfish desires and never really stopping long enough to say, am I selfish? Are there people you need to forgive? Do you, do you waste all your money on yourself? You waste your energy only on yourself. Do you give time for other people? Do you have time in your day that you make for God? Do you have to squeeze Him in the calendar? If you treated your spouse like you treated God in the amount of time, what would your spouse think? I never see you. I haven't talked with you in weeks. If you treated your house mortgage like you do your offerings to God, would you still live there or would they repo it? Like think truly about how much selfishness has taken our culture over. Kids that can't even post a picture without editing it a thousand times. Constantly stare. I'm not against phones, I love them, but constantly just everything is selfish motivated. Staring at, at everything but the things that really matter. Well, my challenge as we end this was tonight that we would end with two things. And number one is if you want to see revival, humble yourself. And, and take 2024 and maybe take a moment and be fair. And look at some things in your life and say, do I live in a selfish way? Do I live selfish with my family? Do I live selfish with my time? Do I live selfish in my marriage? Do I live selfish with my friends? Because the Bible says he's a jealous God. He desires you to come under his wisdom. So are there ways you think that are not under God's wisdom? Ways you live, habits you have, addictions that aren't under his wisdom. But you tolerate them. You keep them around. You, they're sort of who you are. And you sort of tolerate them by saying, well, he's a God of grace. He knows me. So, Father, tonight as we contemplate such, James said that we were to look sorrowful and shed a tear and say that we repent of selfishness, desires that ruin us and our marriages and our homes and our hearts. So, Father, as we embark on a new year in the next few weeks, I pray that on this corner that we would be a testament of a group of people that humble themselves and say we're on a corner to do His wisdom and not just ours. And we're here to do Your will and not just ours. And I give You thanks for it. In Jesus' precious name.